We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place exclusive interviews with players coaches and team executives streaming live and always available on demand stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the odyssey app the dc national guard might be guarding monuments and the first female special forces candidate is one step closer to putting on her green beret also the search continues for pfc vanessa guillen this is the back My name is Elizabeth Howe, and I'm the defense reporter for Connecting Vets. My name is Jack Murphy. I am a reporter at ConnectingVets.com. So the D.C. National Guard can't seem to catch a break. Secretary of the Army Ryan McCarthy just activated 400 of them to guard the Capitol's monuments. We don't have a ton of details on that activation. They will be unarmed, and they are expected to be in the city until past the 4th of July. But beyond that, um, not a lot more details. They were requested by the National Park Police. We're requesting additional forces, so that's where the activation came from. But the D.C. National Guard is still being investigated for some of the things that they did when they were supporting in protest measures. So it's been, it's been a busy month for that group of groups. Jack, you and I had talked previously about the use of troops on American soil. We were talking about active duty troops in the past, but now we're talking about the National Guard. Is this setting another precedent? Do, has this ever been, do, is this something that we normally do, send National Guard guys to, to guard uh, American sites? Yes, uh, that happens quite frequently, um, including the Special Forces National Guard and other National Guard units. They'll get mobilized for infrastructure security. They could be doing that at a port at a, uh, a nuclear facility, any sort of critical, critical infrastructure. Uh, a monument, it, I don't think we've seen that happen so much in recent years, but I mean, it, it all falls under their purview. It, it's, it's certainly in their wheelhouse. Is there anything that, uh, one of the things that kind of concerns me about this is unarmed. Um, is this just a show of force? Do we know anything about what these guys are actually going to be doing? When we, when we talk about using troops on American soil, uh, where do we go from here? Again, this has been done before, but in light of the recent news, is this like the right move to be making? So we do know that none of them are on the streets yet. Up to 400 can be activated and have been activated, but none of them are physically on the streets of D.C. Uh, those will only be deployed to the streets as necessary. So we might not even see any of them on the streets, depending on how the next couple of weeks go. As far as optics, it was actually just this week that Secretary of Defense Mark Esper started talking about, and I think we've talked about it too, those police organizations that are dressed as if they are military personnel. And this has come to a lot of people's attention. There were a lot of questions about it in recent weeks, especially when you saw law enforcement doing things in uniform and people mistook them for National Guard troops. And so there's supposed to be a little bit more of a 
not a formal investigation, but a look at why these different law enforcement groups are wearing these uniforms. So the military is aware of optics. They are concerned with optics. Uh, and so having National Guard troops back on the streets of DC this quickly might not be something that they want to do. Again, those troops aren't on the streets and will only be physically deployed to the streets of DC as necessary, but up to 400 of them could be. One of my concerns is also, you know, putting uniformed soldiers uh, in harm's way. Right now, uh, the, in my opinion, I think the pendulum is kind of swinging in terms of how we're viewing veterans and how we're viewing service members, at, at least publicly. Of course, putting people in uniform in very high visibility areas, but it looks like they may not even be high vis. Uh, Jack, do you have any insight on that? I mean, it's definitely a slippery slope and you have to wonder, you know, what the repercussions are going to be. Um, you know, if a soldier gets hurt or killed, what if a protester gets hurt and killed? Um, what's that going to look like? How's that going to pan out? And, you know, we're, we're, we're going to slide into November quite quickly. And our president wants to see himself as the law and order candidate. That's how he wants to project himself. And I think there's going to be a lot of pressure to, if not get this stuff under control, quote unquote, at least make it look like you're trying to get it under control. That can lead to uh, potentially, yeah, a dicey situation. And, um, you know, I hope it doesn't come to that. In addition to this week's news of, you know, troops, and we're still talking about racial tensions in the U.S., we have also some interesting and good news. We have female, uh, potentially the first female SF uh, graduate of the Robin Sage course. Yeah, well, of the Q course, uh, the Special Forces Qualification course, and Robin Sage is the last phase of that training. She had previously recycled, uh, so we all thought, or a lot of people thought, she was going to graduate back in like February. Um, she recycled a phase called Tax Skills, which used to be known as small unit training back in the day. But Tax Skills is, is the tactical portion of the training uh, where you're learning how to shoot, move, and communicate out in the woods. She recycled that. I was told that, you know, she's a good soldier. She just needed some extra training. And so they put her through it again, met the standard, and then moved on to Robin Sage. And then she just, what, last week, uh, finished Robin Sage. And his movement will now move on to graduation in, in the next couple weeks. It's a big deal uh, in the sense that, yeah, it's the, it's the first woman who has graduated the Q course and is going to wear the Green Beret. And she's going to go on and serve on a special forces team. Um, and I've been told through my sources that she is of Eastern European descent. She speaks a handful of different languages. And so I think the question for a lot of guys in, in the special forces community has been, as far as you know, female, the notion of female Green Berets is where is the value added in this? Like we're going through all this trouble. Uh, we're, we're trying to like shake everything up. There's all this consternation and concern about this. Um, is it worth it? Is the juice worth the squeeze? Because I'm sorry, it's the military. So it's not about, you know, a single singular individual. It's about the unit and what, what gets brought to the table. And I think with her, you're starting to see what, what is being brought to the table. You're starting to see what the value added could be that a, uh, a, a young woman who speaks a number of different languages, who is, uh, originally from a foreign country can go places and do things that someone like me would not be able to do. Um, and, if you look at everything going on in the world right now uh, in Eastern Europe, it is a prime environment for someone like that to go to work. So it's gonna be really interesting. They're, they're really trying to keep her out of the media spotlight for this reason, because 
the second she has like a book deal or her picture pops up in the newspaper, that's it. She can no longer do, she could no longer work in any sort of clandestine manner. Um, and you'd even have to be very careful about where you deploy her on an overt um, basis because there's just going to be so many eyeballs on her. So they're trying to keep her out of the press, which I respect and I understand. And they're, they want her to go out and actually do the job. So it's going to be very, very interesting to see how that happens. And there are some other women who are in the pipeline who might graduate over the next year. You know, we'll see. Um, that's, that's actually my other question was, how many other women are in the pipeline? So this is the first that would be graduating. But what are we looking at in terms of the numbers that are actually potentially at the end of the year going to be wearing green grays? The number in the pipeline right now, I would say it's less than 10. It's not very many. And some of them are not going to make it. Some are going to flunk out in various phases of training, just like the guys do. It, you know, over the next year, you may see another couple women graduate from the course. Yeah. What, what do you say to the allegations that, and I heard the same thing during the Ranger uh, women, you know, graduating from Ranger school, that the army has wanted to change the optics. They want to change the way it's being perceived as a male-only club, especially the special operations community, that standards have changed, that people are changing. They're, they're maybe being a little more lax with their standards, uh, that they're more, de- they're more concerned about looking good than actually enforcing a standard that all SF candidates and all Ranger candidates have to go through. What is your response to that? Well, I, I can say I've certainly heard the same allegations over the years, but then whenever you try to get somebody to go on the record and talk about it, they suddenly disappear. Um, so that's why, as journalistically speaking, I haven't really reported uh, that because it, it comes down to more like gossip and innuendos than facts. And my door is always open. If anyone wants to hit me up right now and, and present facts, I'm happy to talk about that, but no one has, has done that thus far. Um, what has happened is you'd seen some, uh, like last year, you saw some insurrection in the ranks um, over standards being lowered across the board, not specifically just for women. Um, and I think that this is, is, is a phenomenon that has been taking place for the last, you know, since, since the war on terror began at least, that they keep trying to mix things up in the Q course, they keep trying to change things up. It's not specifically about women, it's about pumping out warm bodies overall, that they just want to flush the ranks and, and, and bring in more and more people. And uh, that's like a whole separate subject in a sense. But what it boils down to is that the Pentagon wants more Green Berets. They want more special forces. And you cannot mass produce these guys. It's not so simple. It's not so quick. And what the special for, what the special warfare center down at Fort Bragg keeps doing is they keep trying to like rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic. Like we're going to move this phase of training over here, move this phase over here, and this and that. But no matter how many times they do this, they're not producing more green berets, and they're not producing them faster. So it really is like they're, they're they've just been chasing their tails for almost two decades now, trying to do something like just trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. And it's just not working. So I think that's the larger issue that has to be addressed. Um, I, I don't think, and I would not, you know, pin it specifically on the issue of women entering into the ranks. I think it's actually a lot bigger than that. Libby, what's your perspective on this? I think that we can see from, because combat roles opened up to females in 2015. 
but that didn't open all of the gates for females. And I think that part of that reason is that standards have been upheld, right? So even if we opened all these roles to females, the females still can't fill these roles if they can't meet the same standards that males performing these roles can do. So we're still seeing Marine Corps boot camp is very slowly being integrated and we're still seeing very small numbers of females making it through these special forces courses and becoming Rangers. And now we have the first female Green Beret, but is there a female that's even made it to the initial stages of SEAL training or is that so far in the future? It's just, I believe that females are filling these roles as they are able, which might be an oversimplification. I might be naive to think that standards are not being adjusted in order to, like Jack was saying, um, aid in the optics of having more females in these specific roles. But from just kind of my superficial knowledge of it, it seems like females are being integrated into these positions and these roles as they are able to meet the standards that males are expected to meet. Let's go ahead and shift gears a little bit. Um, Vanessa Guillen is still missing. We found a body on Fort Hood, um, I, not Fort Hood, I should say Colleen, I believe, uh, that belonged to another soldier that was missing. Where are we at with Guillen? And a lot of folks are feeling like, well, troops are missing now all of a sudden. And one of the comparisons has been like, if we lose a, if we lose a, a pair of night vision goggles or we, we lose a rifle, we shut the post down until we find it. Where are we at with these missing soldiers? And has there been talk about why we're not locking down posts looking for them? A lot, of, a lot of times what happens is that it gets brushed off that these soldiers are AWOL, that they went absent without leave. And then, you know, their, their remains are found years or months later. And it's like, oh, yeah, actually this person died and we should have been looking for them. So I, I think that I think they would have a hard time shutting down posts, locking down posts every time a soldier goes AWOL. You know, because at that time, you don't really know. I mean, in, in the case of Vanessa, foul play is suspected. Uh, now, but I, I don't think you would be able to lock down post every time a soldier goes AWOL. And it did take them two months to determine that there was foul play involved in Vanessa's yeah. missing. And the previous um, previous soldier from Fort Hood that went missing, he was maybe three days away from separating or something. So yeah. it took six months to find him, at which point he was nothing but skeletal remains. So I agree that um, AWOL may be the initial assumption with a lot of these missing troops, which might be a key difference between how we operate when a civilian goes missing. If a civilian goes missing, uh, how does the civilian population respond versus how the military does? Because there is that whole complicating factor of did they just go AWOL? I know Vanessa's situation has been escalated. Uh, the Secretary of the Army commented on it recently. But additionally, the family has been asking for weeks that the FBI take over the investigation from Army Criminal Investigation Command because they're questioning the fact that Vanessa went missing from a military installation. And to them, a military installation should be one of the most secure places. There should have been cameras. There should have been answers. There should be more answers than they've received so far. So they're actually asking. They don't believe that the Army is doing enough. They seem to believe that the Army should really just shut everything down until they can find Vanessa. And they're asking that the FBI take over the investigation because they haven't gotten the answers they want from CID. One of the things that we have heard from several folks, especially across the social media sphere, 
is that race might be playing a part into this. Some folks have said that, that if this person were a white person with blonde hair, blue eyes, that they would have tried to look or their efforts would have been uh, different than what we've seen with Guillen. Uh, how has the Army responded to those allegations? Have they responded to those allegations? Where did you see that, Rod? Well, I've seen it across social media. I've seen a lot of people tweeting. I've seen people Facebooking about, you know, uh, we can go back to 2003 when uh, an African-American uh, soldier was missing alongside, uh, I think there was another, what was her name? The one that was the really famous girl that got captured or she was she went missing in action during 2003 during the initial invasion. Jessica Lynch. Jessica Lynch. Um, a lot of people remember Jessica Lynch, a lot of people know her story, but a lot of people don't know about an African-American soldier who also went missing that was found. Uh, so when, you know, again, racial tensions as they are in the country, this is one of the things that I've seen come up a lot. And I haven't seen a whole lot of responses to it. I think it'd be very difficult for the Army to come forward and talk about, you know, not only do you have a missing person, but also compound that with the discussion of race, whether it's playing a part in it, whether it played a part in it or not. But one thing we do know played a part in it is the sexual harassment piece, which Libby just touched on briefly. Um, this, you know, this case is being looked at two months later now with foul play. The family has already said like, hey, she had complained about uh, an NCO in her unit, had been sexually harassing her. A lot of women are also coming forward in light of this saying, I was sexually harassed on, on Fort Hood and the unit covered it up. Uh, have you heard anything about maybe an investigation to Fort Hood, or is this something that is building momentum that could have some type of investigative outcome at the end? So far, Army CID has said that they don't have any reason to suspect that sexual harassment played a part, but that's because Guillen never submitted any sort of reports of sexual harassment, which she told her family she did not do because females in her unit had complained about this specific, I think it was a sergeant before, to no avail. Nothing had resulted from the reports that they submitted. But Army CID did say that they are investigating all leads. They're looking at um, every concern that's brought up. And I think that now with admitting that foul play is suspected, they might be paying a little bit more attention to those allegations of sexual harassment. But it is so far just hearsay because Guillen never submitted any sort of formal report regarding um, any sort of harassment in her unit. So Army CID is kind of using that as a, we're aware of these allegations, but she never submitted a report. So we have no reason to believe at this time that that's a legitimate concern, which is probably very frustrating for the family or any other females in that unit that may have similar concerns. Um, but again, they have said that they are uh, following all investigative leads. So if sexual harassment played a part in this, it should come to light. Jack, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, not, not specifically to this case. I can just say I talk to young women in the military all the time who say that like this is like commonplace. Um, I was talking to a young female soldier uh, just yesterday, and she was telling me she's lost all confidence in the SHARP program. She's like, people report stuff and, and nothing happens. Um, and it's, it's just very common. I was talking to another female soldier yesterday I mean, just horrible stuff. I mean, as a reporter, I mean, that stuff just comes to you all the time. I mean, there's clearly a problem. And I think people are aware of it now um, after the Department of Defense kind of tried to like, you know, deny it for so long. But it's still going on. There's still no end in sight. 
it seems like there's this weird mix inside of the military between law and your chain of command, law and your NCO support channel, law and your, you know, your unit, that is. If you have a complaint or a sexual harassment complaint, they encourage you to go through your chain of command. But yet, I don't see how that applies like in the civilian sector. Like I'm not going to, I don't have to necessarily go to my HR. I can go to law enforcement and be like, hey, I have a problem with this person who sexually assaulted me, sexually harassed me or whatever. Some folks have been talking about possibly changing the system as it is at the, the reporting chain or changing sharp so that it's further away from the units, further away even from the military, maybe making a third party. Uh, do you think that will help? Do you think that, that maybe there's a systemic, systemic problem with how women have to report or not just women, yeah. anyone yeah, no, reports I, I think any, anytime you have a unit or a command investigating itself, they're going to find themselves not guilty every single time. Uh, even IG, the inspector general system is broken in my opinion. Um, they, they, you know, depending on the office, some of them in the military actively cover up stuff for their chain of command. You know, I, I think, yeah, having a third party looking at it would be helpful. Uh, but also, I mean, it has something to do with the way soldiers are socialized in the military and it, it kind of um, uh, infantilizes you and, and keeps you in this very like immature state. So what I mean by that is that if you think about like normal people, normal young men and young women, that they're all kind of thrown together in college and the military, you're kind of kept separate and it's just like the way you're socialized is just completely different. And there's, a, there's like these two separate worlds. And I, and I think it kind of keeps like a, a soldiers in a sort of juvenile state that contributes to sort of these, um, well, you can call it sexual harassment, you can call it sexual assault, you can call it a, you know, lack of discipline in the ranks, but all of these issues, I, I think partially stem from that. And, you know, although I'm one of those crusty guys who thinks that having men and women in, in the infantry unit together is like a recipe for disaster, I can also see some of the positive aspects of it that it would change the military culture in, in some good ways as well. Libby, one of the things that you, you touched on was the family wanted the FBI to jump into this a lot earlier, uh, if not take over the investigation. Now, why not? Why not? Why hasn't the army just said, hey, let's give this over to the FBI. Why are they so adamant about holding on to this investigation in their hands? There are certainly jurisdiction issues. There are also implications of incompetence if the army has to hand over an investigation on an army installation to the FBI. So beyond the, the jurisdiction of this happened on an army installation, army CID has priority. There would be kind of not formally admitting, but at least implementing the army CID wasn't able to, uh, to find Vanessa basically. And the FBI had to step in and assist. There isn't a, an even playing field on the FBI assisting army CID. Obviously those organizations collaborate a lot, but there's, there is kind of a, an underlying message of we can't handle this. Can you help? I think it's interesting because, you know, my entire army career, I'd heard about CID. I think every soldier's heard about the undercover Joe in their unit. That's actually a CID guy. Um, never really had a whole lot of experience with those folks. I'm very curious if there's any, any supporting numbers or, or uh, demographics some type of statistical stuff that shows the effectiveness of, of a CID investigation. Do they have history? Do they have a good record of 
finding people that are missing, finding AWOL soldiers. They have a, they have a good record of investigating in general because, again, kind of going back to just the general military experience, you're usually kind of traveling around. You're, you're, as you're going through your ranks, you don't really stay in one position for too long. Whereas in the civilian world, you know, you're going to be a detective for a hot bit. Uh, you kind of find this role and that's what you do. How does that work? And, you know, has that been brought up? Is this something that we've been looking at and going, well, what is CID really the best uh, investigative body for these types of situations? You know, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, honestly, I don't know the answer to it. I'm not familiar enough with CID or, or their overall track record. I, and I do wonder if CID is subject to the same level of peer review as regular law enforcement is because they're on military bases, they work inside this very insular culture and perhaps are um, protected or insulated from critique. But I would also point towards the recent Eddie Gallagher case. And I think that's something of a wake up call as well. Well, makes Can you tell us a little life. bit about that? What, what is the Eddie Gallagher case? Well, it was a Navy SEAL. He was accused of war crimes. A bunch of his former teammates came out against him and testified and offered testimony to CID. CID and, and then JAG um, prosecuted the case. And it was just a mess. It was just a disaster. Um, and it was very clear that CID and JAG did not do their homework, that they did not lock that case up the way they should have. The accused was acquitted on all but one charge. Um, and I, I think just that case, and if you go and read about the details of it, make you wonder, like, do these guys know what they're doing? You know? And CID is, is again, uh, I can only speak to my own experience, but they're kind of a secretive kind of insular organization. Uh, they don't really talk that much about what CID looks like from the, in, from the inside. Again, I, I can understand these are criminal investigations, but uh, they also do recruit very much like special forces. They put out uh, recruitment posters like, hey, come join CID. So uh, they do recruit from the general army, come be a CID guy. I remember they had some of my human guys, hey, come you know, consider being part of CID. That again, kind of looks very interesting to me because it's a very different dynamic than what you would see in traditional law enforcement. I don't see a lot of you know, hey, come be a detective with, you know, uh, Washington, D.C. force. I don't care if you're a cook or a mechanic. You might be a great detective. I, I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying CID is bad. And if somebody's listening, if you're watching and you're CID and you want to throw in your two cents, please shoot me an email or hit me up on Twitter. I want to hear from you. Uh, I'm just looking at it from my perspective. I, I just don't know enough about this organization. Uh, Libby, do you have anything for that? I do know that um, among my kind of cohort, people looking to join the army and choosing their careers were wary of CID because 95% of what you're doing isn't these missing person murder type of investigations or high profile things like Eddie Gallagher. They're pretty, pretty boring, low key investigations. Maybe a unit has lost a couple extra staplers or something like that. That's all that I really know about CID. Um, if that is the case and 90% of the investigative work that you do is not this high profile and does not garner this type of media attention, that could be cause for concern. And it kind of goes hand in hand with this high profile case and the family asking the Army CID not be the lead investigative power on it. All right. So go ahead and tell folks where they can reach out to you guys. 
Uh, you can find me on uh, Twitter at Jack Murphy RGR, or if you want to shoot me an email, my uh, email address is Jack at ConnectingBets.com. You can reach me on Twitter at ECBHow. Folks, I'm Rod Rodriguez. You can follow me on Twitter at RodPodRod. And if you have any information about PFC Gian, please call 254-287-2722 or 254-288-1170. I will see you at the next episode. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.